Good evening, everybody. You're all very welcome to the lexicon. My name is Marion. I'm the librarian here. And it gives me the greatest of pleasures to welcome you to our talk this evening on Speranza, Oscar's Mama by Christopher Fitzsimon. You're very welcome. Um, we're thrilled to be back in the studio. It's been a while since we've been here. We've only just started reopening gradually. We hope this can con continue over the coming weeks. Um, as you can see, we have spaces uh, uh, socially distanced and we're also podcasting this event. So if some of your friends haven't been able to come tonight, this will be available uh, probably after Anne's talk next week. We'll have both of them available for you and your friends to listen to again. So just a couple of housekeeping things. First of all, if you could maybe turn your phones off. And the emergency exits are the door you came through. And it's the door behind me here. I'll be here throughout. And the toilets are just outside. And just important to remember at the end, there is a kind of a sound. You might hear a little buzzy sound saying that we're closing now, coming up to eight o'clock. But I'm going to open the door immediately outside the studio to let you out, because the doors will most likely be locked if it's just after eight o'clock. So many of you in the audience will know that um, we have a superb exhibition upstairs on level three called All Right on the Night, which features Anne and Christopher. So we have this until the end of January. It's moving from level three up to level four um, at the beginning of December. But we hope you get a chance to see the exhibition. And if you don't have time to read it while you're here, we also have, have it available online. And you can also see the interview that Vincent Woods did with Anne and Christopher. So that's available online too on our website. So, just to introduce Christopher properly. Uh, Christopher has initiated such iconic series as Talca Row, and he moved to and fro between theatre and the TV. He held executive positions at the Abbey Theatre, the Irish Theatre Company, and the Lyric Theatre Belfast. He has lectured on Irish theatre in 10 countries on four continents. And among his many books are The Boys, which is a biography of Hilton Edwards and Micheál MacLeamore, and most recently, Rise Above, Letters of Tyrone Guthrie. He's no stranger to the studio theatre here. He has, he has given talks on Oscar Wilde, on uh, Tyrone Guthrie, and he's introduced Simon Callow. I was just looking up, it was almost exactly six years ago here in the studio. So it's, it's a great pleasure to have Christopher here um, talking about Speranza on the week that the plaque was inserted on One Merrion Square during the week, only four days ago. So you're welcome, Christopher. We look forward to your talk. Please give him a warm welcome. Arise, young men of Ireland. Arise. Arise. Do not your eyes flash, do not your heart throb at the prospect of having a country? For you have no country. You have never felt the pride, the dignity, the majesty of independence. You could never lift your head to heaven and glory in the name of Irishman, for all Europe read the brand of slave upon your brow. Oh, for a thousand muskets glittering brightly in the light of heaven and the monumental barricade stretching across each of our noble streets made desolate by England. 
circling around that doomed castle made infamous by England, where the foreign tyrant hailed his council of treason and iniquity against our people and our country for 700 years. That piece of inflammatory prose was published in the Nation Weekly in 1848. It was signed Speranza, a nom de plume that had frequently appeared in that paper over the previous four years, for it was considered unsuitable for ladies, think of the Bronte sisters, to dabble in literature under their own names until they became famous enough to sustain the weight of celebrity. The soubriquet Speranza also concealed her political views from members of her own family, respectable members of the Church of Ireland and of a distinctly unionist caste. Jane Francesca Elgie was aged 24 when she first offered a manuscript to the nation's editor, Charles Gavin Duffy. She'd come from Wexford to live in Dublin with her widowed mother. Her father had been a lawyer. Her grandfather, Archdeacon John Elgie, had been rector of St. Iberius Church on Lower Main Street, now celebrated for its lunchtime recitals of superior quality and its handsome marble memorials to distinguished Wexford Protestants. Jane Francesca's mother shared accommodation in Dublin with her sister, Henrietta Maturin, widow of the Reverend Charles Maturin, author of the Gothic novel, Melmoth the Wanderer. He was known for his loquacity, but possessed the self-knowledge to understand when to stop talking, a quality I think not shared by the majority of loquacious persons. When the Reverend Maturin sensed that he was going on too long, he would apply a strip of sticking plaster across his mouth. <laughs> Eccentricity abounded in this family, as we shall see. Half a century later, Jane Francesca, now Lady Wilde, disclosed to W.B. Yeats that as a very young woman, she was unaware of the political currents of the time until she witnessed a vast crowd in the street one day in 1875, in, I beg your pardon, in 1845. She inquired of the proprietor of a bookshop what was the cause and was told, it is for the funeral cortege of the poet, Mr. Thomas Davis. Miss Elgie brought a volume of Mr. Davis's poems and was, she said to Yeats, immediately converted to the cause of Irish nationalism. This story was repeated by her son Oscar 40 years later while on a lecture tour in the United States. Oscar was inclined towards elaboration, like mother, like son, describing to an audience in San Francisco his mother viewing Davis's funeral procession from the window of her lordly home, lodgings in Lower Leeson Street. <laughs> Be that as it may, 
Jane Francesca had made a discovery. She declared that Davis had written patriotic verse that clashed like symbols, a toxin to revolution. Like most young ladies in this restricted and genteel milieu, Jane Francesca studied at home. She later claimed to have learned 10 languages. Certainly, she made translations from French and German, and more surprisingly, Russian, Norwegian, and Spanish. I think we would nowadays call them versions. She also translated significantly from Italian. This is hardly surprising, given her ancestry. Italian? Well, was not her name Jane Francesca Elgie? Actually, it was not. It was Jane Frances Elgie. Frances miraculously becoming Francesca when she decided her career was to be in letters. Elgie, she announced, was derived from the Italian name Aligiati. And Aligiati, in turn, was a der derivative of what else? but Alighieri. She figured that she was descended from the divine, the serene, the supreme, Dante Alighieri di Firenze. There was none to contradict her. Then she added yet another to this cluster of names, Speranza. And it was thus that she signed the translations and other work that appeared in the Nation newspaper in the 1840s. When, having married William Wilde, she corresponded with the American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow on the subject of his Dante translations, she signed herself Francesca Sparenza Wilde, for alas, the law requires one to adopt one's husband's name on marriage. When submitting work to Gavin Duffy, Speranza admitted that she used the pseudonym mainly to keep her new allegiance from her family, but also because she believed that if it were known that she was a woman, there would be less chance of publication. Apparently, Gavin Duffy gently disabused her of this idea, pointing out that the nation had a number of female contributors who used their own names, and the deputy editor was Miss Margaret Callum. Speranza didn't keep her connection with the nation secret for long, because one of her uncles found her reading a copy. Far from allowing herself to be discountenanced, she upheld her newfound beliefs. So, her relatives had to put up with what they regarded as her misguided opinions on Irish politics and on the position of women in society for as long as she and they lived. Gavin Duffy described her writing as virile. He described her as of stately carriage and figure. She had flashing brown eyes and features cast in an heroic mold. There is a certain tact in this description. Clearly, he thought, she is an Amazon. What kind of work was she submitted to the nation? 
romantic, sentimental verse on the subject of her country's wrongs, either of her own composition or adapted from foreign sources. It was an age of revolutions throughout Europe. Most of all, her work was intended to be subversive. Here is a short example. Signs of the Times. When mighty passions surging heave the depth of life's great ocean, when people sway like forest trees to and fro in wild commotion, when the world-old kingdoms rent and riven quiver in their place, and the human central fire is unheaving at their base, and throbbing hearts and flashing eyes speak a language deep and cryptic. Yet he who runs may read aright the signs apocalyptic. <laughs> Speranza was adept in finding the appropriate rhyme. <laughs> the poem continues, the Russians breathed on Poland and she changed to a Sahara. The jewels in her ancient crown adorned the czar's tiara. <laughs> and then the Irish parallel is deftly introduced to several swinging stanzas, ending, then courage brothers, lock your shields like the old Spartan band, advance and be your watch forever, God for Ireland. I have deliberately quoted one of Speranza's earlier and less accomplished poems. She learnt and improved with experience. There is a curious masculinity in her diction. The editor was justified in describing her style as virile. But we have to recall that she was addressing a largely male readership. The naivety of her sentiments while revealing her own naivety, must be taken in the context of a largely uneducated audience. And the mindlessly intrepid call to arms can be paralleled in patriotic balladry the world over. It's easy too to mock the rhetoric and the choice of imagery, but again, we must recall the nature of her heroes seated round the cottage fire, wrapped by these flights of fancy, as read aloud by one who was probably the only literate person in the parish. And we must also recall that other much more firmly established poets, such as the elderly Mr. Wadsworth or the middle-aged Mr. Tennyson, are hardly exempt from categorization in what used to be known as stuffed owl poetry. <laughs> when armed revolt seemed imminent in the summer of 1848, the government had Gavin Duffy and others associated with the nation arrested on a charge of incitement. Miss Callan saw the next issue through the press. It contained the, the piece by Speranza entitled Yacta Alia Est, The Die is Cast, which I quoted at the outset. 
It is a romantic call to arms in which the oratorical turn of speech is most expertly phrased as if for public delivery. Speranza was a frequent theater goer in that era of popular declamatory drama or melodrama, and she certainly absorbed the dramatic style. How would she have reacted, one wonders, had her words led to bloodshed? It's something that fortunately we will never know. There is a world between those who incite violence and those who are in the front lane of fire. The government speedily took steps to dampen revolutionary ardour by the simple expedient of jailing the leaders of the Young Ireland movement. Gavin Duffy was kept behind bars for several months. When tried for using the nation to promote sedition, Speranza's article was used as proof against him and the paper, which by now had been suppressed. The court proceedings lasted several weeks. When the text of Yacta Alia Est was read out, Speranza was in the public gallery. Although unsigned, it was generally known that she was the author. She was exceedingly vexed when the Solicitor General stated that he was aware that it had been written by a lady of respectability and most respectably connected, implying that she was of unionist background, and also implying that authorship was of small importance. What was important to the prosecution was that it had been printed. Springing to her feet, Speranza cried, I am the culprit, I wrote the article. Five burly constables, they must have been burly for she was a big lady, stepped forward and removed her from the scene. Yet, as she much later recalled, her exclamations within and without the court were widely reported, helping to marshal support for Gavin Duffy. Ultimately, the jury was unable to reach agreement. Gavin Duffy was released, resumed editorship, stood for Parliament and was elected a founder of the new Irish party at Westminster. In parenthesis, I'd like to add that it was in despair at the slow progress of legislation for Irish independence that he moved to Australia in 1855 to practice law. He subsequently became Prime Minister of Victoria and was knighted by Queen Victoria for his services to the colony. It was as if the young islanders and the nation news newspaper had never happened. I don't know where or when Jane Francesca Elgie first met William Wilde, but it would have been most unlikely had they not met quite frequently, for they both moved in a fairly confined circle compiled mainly of Protestant business and professional people. The Gellets, the Stokers, the Bewleys, the some of the Larges, the Collins, people often now described as Anglo-Irish, 
an appellation they would have abhorred. Dr. Wilde was from Castlereagh in County Roscommon. The Wildes are thought to have descended from a 17th century immigrant called de Wilt, possibly of Doc's Dutch extraction. His mother was a former Miss Flynn of the same county, and further back, he claimed kinship with the O'Flaherty's, one of the tribes of Galway. He attended the Diocesan Secondary School in Elphin before entering TCD, and in 1851, when they married, he was an ENT specialist, aged 37, who had already founded, on his own initiative, St. Mark's Ophthalmic Hospital, the earliest of its kind in the world. He was the inventor of the ophthalmoscope, and the term Wilde's incision is, I'm reliably informed, still used by those who perform operations upon the ear, Wilde's incision. His pervading interest, however, was antiquarian. He traveled on horseback whenever he had the time to discover and report upon sites of the Celtic past. His work on the three-volume catalogue of the contents of the Museum of the Royal Irish Academy took him several years to compile by hand. Some observers said that burning the midnight oil on such projects contributed to his death at 61. Others, as we shall see, attributed his early death to other causes. By the time Jane Francesca Elgie and William Wilde were married, she was not only the author of a considerable body of verse and journalism, but also the translator of several hefty volumes of contemporary European literature, among them Meinhold, Lamartine, Dumas, and Swedenborg, strange bedfellows. When, very much later, she collected and published ancient legends, mystic charms, and superstitions of Ireland, these topics were hailed as being in the same spirit as her husband's books on Irish topography. An odd assertion, but one understands the thinking. Her Celtic legends were hugely popular, especially in America. What had Speranza and William in common? They were energetic, sociable, strong-willed, well-informed, constantly seeking all kinds of arcane knowledge. Because of their inclination towards nationalist politics, they were considered unusual in unionist-dominated society. Their relatives probably dismissed their political views as be being merely one of their many eccentricities. Indeed, if there were no such thing as eccentricity, William and Speranza would have invented it. <laughs> there was certainly an inventive gene as well. Their son Oscar was said to have invented the age in which he lived. <laughs> Speranza and William 
were also somewhat unusual to behold. William was comparatively diminutive stature, while Speranza made up for it in both height and breadth. Bernard Shaw said that Speranza suffered from gigantism, a term which has no medical credence. The Scottish scholar John Stuart Blackie, on a visit, told his wife that Speranza is one of those who love the male as a kindred spirit whose likeness they should have been created in. Well, the hospitality of the wild household at number one Merrion Square became legendary. William added an upper floor conservatory off the drawing room, is still there, in which they received visiting scientists, men and women of letters, archaeologists, actors, but probably not many of their own relatives. Speranza liked to keep the blinds down to exclude daylight. An aroma of incense permeated the air. It was in this rarefied atmosphere that little Oscar grew up, along with his less impressionable elder brother William and his adored sister Isola, who died of fever when she was 11 and Oscar was 12 and he was devastated. Speranza took a keen interest in archaeological discoveries, engaging a silversmith to copy some of the jewellery which was being unearthed almost weekly at ancient sites. Celtic was the term generally used. An antique ring which Sir William, he'd recently been knighted for his services to science, an antique ring which he intended to present to the RIA would play its part in the initiation of painful legal proceedings at a later date. When she and her husband travelled abroad, she showed her interest in traditional Irish fabric making, linen, woolens, hand knotted lace and crochet. He attended numerous scientific meetings in places such as Antwerp and Paris and, of course, in London. And she might well have been considered as an advertisement for Irish industries, for she wore Celtic brooches, pins, armlets, collarets, gorgets and chains as well as robes created from Ulster poplin and Limerick lace. The tout ensemble with the glitter of the gold and the sounds produced by the jangling of these pieces of metalwork was said to have been the wonder of the continental salons visited. So we've left behind Speranza's period as a polemicist and have entered the period of, no, I can't say domesticity, except in the sense of domus meaning a dwelling. She despised conventional husband worship and wrote hopefully of a new era of equal rights, 
equal culture and equal honors for men and women. This was in 1850. She was aware of what others might call her husband's indiscretions, and some of his children by other women were invited to play with her children, for example, at the house they rented in the summer in Glenis Mole. She did, however, display feelings of jealousy and annoyance when she thought that a certain Miss Travers, a patient of William's, appeared to be visiting his private surgery on the ground floor rather more often than seemed medically necessary. Miss Travers, daughter of Professor Robert Travers of TCD, was said to be suffering from inflammation of the eyeball. On several occasions, she accompanied William to the great exhibition of science and art in Herbert Park. She even called to the house on a Sunday morning, often to take, offering to take the boys to church. One afternoon, Speranza entered William's dressing room intent upon examining a gold ring that had been discovered in an archaeological dig, when her eye lit upon another piece of jewellery. Upon my honour, she said, that is the pin of Miss Travers' bonnet. How do we know what she said? From the reports of court proceedings in the Daily Advertiser, the Evening Post and the Freeman's Journal, in which witnesses recalled everything but everything. She sought William in his consulting room to find not only William, but Miss Travers engaged in animated conversation. <laughs> Never one to mince words, she exclaimed in jocular fashion, Oh, Miss Travers, do you wish to take my husband from me? At the same time, giving Miss pa Travers a friendly pinch. Then she laughed, <laughs> in order to lighten the atmosphere. Miss Travers fled from the room. Apparently, William declared that he was tired of the approaches of this woman and gave orders to the servants that she be not admitted to the house again. She did, however, manage to pass the front door a few days later, but neither William nor Speranza received her, and she was observed leaning against a marble slab in the hall for two hours. Not long after this, Sir William was giving a lecture in the Metropolitan Hall when friends informed him that a scurrilous pamphlet was being handed out by newsboys concerning the conduct of a certain Dr. Quilp, who bore an all too close resemblance to himself. It was alleged that this doctor had taken advantage of a young woman while she was under the influence of that new and indispensable medical discovery, chloroform. Speranza unwisely began an angry correspondence with Miss Travers, also writing to Dr. Travers to complain about his daughter's conduct. Miss Travers found this letter and sued Speranza for libel. 
the result was that Speranza was taken to court. Two phrases from one of her letters were singled out, that she had accused Miss Travers of consorting with newsboys, and that Miss Travers had enjoyed an intrigue with Sir William Wilde. The press made out that the case was not so much against Lady Wilde for libel, but against Sir William for something much worse. When, in the course of the public examination, Miss Travers was asked if, in her unconscious state, her person had been violated while Sir William was operating on her eyeball, the rapt world was astonished to hear her reply, yes. The case continued for several days to the delight of Dublin dinner parties. Speranza was ordered to pay damages of a farthing to Miss Travers for libel. However, the legal costs amounted to £2,000, and this huge figure seriously curtailed the generous lifestyle at number one Merrion Square. Sir William's biographer, his illegitimate son, Dr. Thomas Wilson, attributes Sir William's decline in health and fortune to the ignominy he experienced as the result of this court case. He died 12 years later at the age of 61. Indeed, the vagaries of libel cases and the danger of their unforeseen results was paralleled 29 years later when his son Oscar injudiciously sued the father of his lover, Lord Alfred Douglas, for libel, and the law famously took its toll. And now it's time for some pictures. The picture you've been looking at is the portrait of Speranza by Morosini, as she may have appeared at the height of her social celebrity in the 1850s. The current postage stamp, and congratulations to Unpost for remembering the bicentenary of Speranza's birth. Of course, she never looked anything like this. It's from the Irish Fireside magazine of September 1885, and that was an idealised rendering of an earlier portrait by Bernard Mulrennan, RHA. And Post have idealised it even further by placing the word Speranza in her tiara. Speranza and William Wilde, at the time of their wedding, caricatured by William Furness of Punch magazine. And this is the house on the corner of Merrion Square and Lower Merrion Street, to which the Wilds moved from Westland Row in 1855. Speranza's salons were held here. When Oscar was a student in TCD, he invited some of his friends to a party, saying his parents had started a society for the suppression of virtue. None of his friends turned up. <laughs> 
This is Dr. William Wilde as a young man. By the time he married Speranza, he was already the author of several scientific studies and the father of at least three children whom he cared for assiduously. The title page of William Wilde's Beauties of the Boyne and its tributary, The Blackwater. Of New Grange, he discloses that a gentleman residing in the neighbourhood cleared away the rubbish and brought to, lay, to light a remarkable carved stone. Of course, this curved stone with its triple spiral motif is now celebrated the world over as a supreme example of European Neolithic art. And his other popular book was Loch Mask and Loch Corrib, he maintained a second home called Mortura on the shores of Loch Corrib. This is the title page of Lady Wilde's Ancient Legends, Mystic Charms and Superstitions of Ireland. The designation Lady undoubtedly helped with sales. By the time this curious gem came out, she had already published at least seven books unrelated to Ireland. Her translation of part of Lamartine's Mémoire as The Wanderer and His Home is one. Another is The Glacier Land from Dumas. And if any of you can tell me of what Dumas book this is and which Dumas it was, I'll be very pleased. Here is Speranza dressed up in her exotic finery for one of her celebrated soirees at number one Marion Square. Oh no, I'm sorry, I've made a mistake. It is her son Oscar modeling the costume for the impending London production of her play, of his play, Salome. But the play was banned by the Lord Chamberlain on the grounds that biblical characters should not be portrayed on the stage. Salome was produced in Paris at the Théâtre de Louvre by Lunier Poet in 1876 and considered a great success. Speranza did not see the production due to her age and immobility, nor did Oscar, for he was in jail. Richard Strauss's opera followed in 1912 and the earliest English language production was at the Gate Theatre, Dublin, in 1928. This is the title page of a memoir, Oscar Wilde and His Mother, by Anna Comtesse de Bremont. We'll come to Anna de Bremont in a moment. She was an American lady of noble French descent who admired Speranza's writing and called to see her in London in her old age. They became friends. Her memoir is really about Speranza, although having the name Oscar Wilde in the title would have given some additional publicity to the book. This is probably one of the last images of Speranza perhaps taken by a visitor to her house when she was living in London in her declining years. Her grandson Cyril 
described her as a terrifying and very severe old lady. And now we'll catch up with her at an earlier date. Speranza's interest in the remote past, largely influenced by Sir William, resulted in the publication of several books devoted to fol folkloric topics. Here is a passage from one of her books recalling the legend of St. Patrick banishing reptiles from Ireland. There is a lake in one of the Galti mountains where there is a large serpent chained to a rock and he may be heard constantly crying out, St. Patrick is the Lewin long from us. For when St. Patrick cast the serpent into the lake, he bade him be chained to the rock until law unluin, the day of judgment. But the serpent mistook the word and thought the saint meant luin Monday. So he still expects to be freed from one Monday to another. And the clanking of his chains on that day is awful to hear as he strives to break them to get free. It is an appalling metaphorical glimpse of the sinner in torment, like an image from Speranza's own ancestor, Dante Alighieri. An enthusiast rather than a scholar, her books were read by thousands of equally enthusiastic people, and so she enjoyed a modest, though diminishing, income from book sales after the, de the death of her husband. Furthermore, she now published under the name of Lady Wilde, which added considerable reclam. Here are some short extracts from her collection, Ancient Cures, Charms and Usages of our Ireland, published by Ward and Downey of London in 1820. It is dangerous at night to turn round if you hear steps following you, for it is the dead who are out there and their glance would kill. A dead hand is esteemed a certain cure for most diseases. And many a time, sick people have been brought to a house where a corpse lay, that the hand of the dead might be cast upon them. A cure for mumps. Wrap the child in a blanket, take it to the pigsty, rub the child's head on the back of a pig, and the mumps will leave it and pass into the animal. For whooping cough in children, catch a live trout and put it into the child's mouth, where it should be allowed to revolve. Then put the trout back in the stream. If a trout cannot be found, a frog may suffice. It is no wonder that the statistic for child mortality in Ireland was so high. <laughs> On Sir William's death in 1876, he was found to be quite heavily in debt due to the unexpected expenses of the trial and to a decline in his consultancy, probably for the same reason. He 
had also been exceptionally generous in supporting philanthropic projects and in subsidizing individuals he felt a duty towards or an affection for. This included his illegitimate children. He maintained two girls, Emily and Mary, as lodgers at Drumsnet Rectory in County Monaghan, where his brother Rafe was the incumbent. When they were burned to death in a fire at a neighboring house, Drummer Connor is still there, he attended the funeral. And it was said that his groans of remorse were heard outside the graveyard. The house in Merrion Square had been mortgaged. It passed to Sir William's elder son, William, who sold it to cover debts. Speranza moved to London, which he disliked, renting a small house in Oakley Street, Chelsea. Not a good address. And she shared this with her elder son, William, who I think it's not unfair to say was a bit of a chancer. When Oscar married Miss Constance Lloyd of Dublin in 1884, they set themselves up in Tite Street, Chelsea, only a few minutes walk away. A very good address indeed. Number 16 was the epitome of the house beautiful. Apparently, W.B. Yeats was embarrassed by the elegance quite the reverse at Speranza's house in Oakley Street. We know of Speranza's circumstances through Anna de Bremont's memoir. She describes Speranza's sitting room as poorly furnished, the tea badly served by a dowdy maid, an atmosphere of dust and dinginess. These elements were not so apparent on Saturday afternoons when Speranza kept her salon, for, as in Dublin, the windows were shrouded in heavy drapes and candles burned dimly. The gloom described diplomatically by Anna de Bremont as Rembrandtesque. She wrote that it was considered very intellectual to attend Lady Wilde's crushes by ladies of high degree and ladies of no degree. Poets and painters, artists and art critics, writers and scribblers. Apparently those who had not come to pay homage to Speranza came in the hope of meeting Oscar. In spite of the drab surroundings, Anna was vastly impressed by Speranza herself. She said, a majestic figure standing in the center of obscurity. Anna de Bremont, whose interest in human affairs extended beyond matters of social trivia, dispersed herself of the opinion in her monograph that Oscar possesses the feminine soul this was the ghost that haunted his house of life, that sat beside him in the day of feast and sustained him in the day of famine. The mothers of great men have possessed the masculine soul. When the soul and the brain are united in a natural combination, we behold the ordinary man and woman. 
When the soul and brain is abnormal, the result is the genius. The feminine soul in the masculine brain building, uh, the contest continued, creates the genius of man. While the masculine soul in the feminine brain building creates the genius of woman. She concluded that Oscar Wilde's condition of genius resulted from the feminine soul being encased, so to speak, in the male body, and his mother's condition of genius from the masculine soul in the feminine body. Anna de Bremont was clearly onto something fundamental and original. It's perhaps worth noting that she came to publish these observations only seven years after Sigmund Freud's collected essays. It's also worth noting that she was of serious disposition and her remarks were penned without a hint of disrespect. She was not engaged in scandalous speculation or in promoting a theory for the sake of sensation. Speranza had followed Oscar's gradual rise to literary fame eagerly, from his winning the Newdigate Prize for Poetry at Oxford when he was 22, to the premiere of Lady Windermere's Fan at the St. James's Theatre London when he was 41. When he won the Newdigate for the poem Ravenna, she wrote to him from Dublin, well, after all, we have genius. That is something the attorneys cannot take away. By 1891, she has ceased to go out in London. She didn't see the first production of Lady Windermere's Fan, but she read the reviews. She wrote to Oscar, you have had a brilliant success and I am so happy. Even the London cabmen ask if I am anything to Oscar Wilde. The milkman has bought your picture. Can she have been aware that he was consorting disastrously with members of the lower classes throughout the five years that saw the production of his most famous plays. I very much doubt it. Her mentioning the milkman buying his picture was surely not intended to be taken with a raised eyebrow and a loud <clears throat> She sat at home brooding in the self-imposed twilight while Lady Windermere's fan, a woman of no importance, an ideal husband, and the importance of being earnest illuminated the stages of London. These plays were in a totally different mode to Oscar's early and at this time largely unproduced dramas with their fantasiacal intensity and self-consciously symbolist leanings. Speranza would not have been concerned, however, with niceties of that kind. To her, Oscar was simply displaying before the wilder, wider world the genius that hitherto only been appreciated by the intelligentsia. 
She would hardly have been interested to learn that he had taken the situation for the importance of being earnest from a play by Dean Boucicault called A Lover by Proxy. The Boucicaults were friends of the Wilds in Dublin. Boucicault was now dead, but I don't think this was willful plagiarism on Oscar's part, but rather something half remembered from a childhood visit to the theatre in Dublin. There were more pressing matters for Speranza. The newspapers now ensured that there was no escaping from knowledge of the court proceedings when Oscar unsuccessfully took the case against Lord Queensbury for libel. When the positions were reversed, it was suggested by friends that Oscar should free to France, to, France to, to escape the charge of high-class sodomy. Speranza said, if you stay, even if you go to prison, you will always be my son. It will no, make no difference to my affection, but if you go, I will never speak to you again. He stayed. Oscar was in Reading Jail when she died. And when he lay dying in Paris four years later, Anna de Bremont came to visit him and she wrote of the striking likeness on his face to that of his mother. Speranza's final years were undoubtedly clouded by the fall from grace of Oscar in the eyes of the law. She had been granted a civil list pension by the Royal Literary Fund. When applying for it, she had to declare her year of birth, which she had always maintained was 1826. Vexed by the bureaucracy that required the register date, she declared that no registry office was required when giants walked the earth. When she died, she was described at a meeting of the Irish Society that still exists in St. Paul, Minnesota. In fact, I've spoken there on a different topic. She was described in Minnesota as one of Ireland's noblest daughters, who in the troublous times of 1848, by the works of her pen and by her noble example, did much to keep the fire of patriotism burning brightly. The obituary writers of the London papers were unusually kind, choosing to overlook her anti-British propagandism. The Times went as far as to describe her poems as being of virile and passionate rhetoric. Possibly this was a subtle insult. The Irish papers devoted column after column to her life and work. One should always be a little improbable, remarked Oscar Wilde. He may have been thinking of himself, but the epithet certainly applies to his mother. Absurd she may have appeared to her detractors, 
but she possessed that strength of character which enables the sincere and the single-minded to rise above detraction. I am an LG, she once remarked, implying that anyone bearing that name could not possibly wither under adverse scrutiny. Jane Francesca Speranza L.G. Wilde, improbable as her name, forceful as a hundred thousand muskets glittering brightly in the light of heaven, richly deserves her place in the pantheon of singular Irish women. And I salute the management of Unpost for recognising her in the disputed bicentenary of her birth. And my thanks go especially to Marion Keyes for inviting me to give this in address in the splendid lexicon library in front of you.